0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting May fifteenth, 2015, we'll be speaking with the journal's managing editor, Jaffa Frederick about a special World Policy Journal panel in the spring issue that spotlights foremost fears of the unknown on four continents. We'll also point out other top stories in the spring issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs
1: the West Wing Reports news service. Well, a setback for the White House on trade, a Senate test vote on so-called fast-track trade authority has failed, raising the possibility that the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a massive trade pact among a dozen Pacific Rim nations, may itself be jeopardized. President Obama has warned that without the trade deal, American influence in Asia could wane, spurring further dominance in Asia by China. This as the U.S. grows increasingly concerned that a Beijing-run rival to the World Bank is already eroding American economic and political clout. Well, no one pushed any reset button, but Secretary of State John Kerry met this week with Russian President Vladimir Putin and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. They met for some eight hours, but no progress reported on two thorny topics, Ukraine and Syria. On Ukraine, the U.S. accuses Russia of violating a February peace plan. Moscow denies this and in turn accuses Washington of orchestrating last year's overthrow of a Ukrainian president who was supported by the Kremlin. Relations between Washington and Moscow are at their lowest levels in decades, thanks to Russian annexation of Ukraine's Crimea Peninsula last year. The U.S. and Russia also agree to disagree on Syria. Washington wants Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad out. Moscow continues to back him. The Syrian civil war, now nearly five years old, has devastated that nation. The U.N. estimates the death toll at at least 220,000, with millions more Injured and displaced. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandes at the White House.
0: Listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. ...as it had failed in its rescue mission. The Coast Guard got bigger in size but did not have enough personnel or a sufficient budget allocated for maritime safety, and there was a lack of training for life-saving. I judge that we won't be able to prevent other large-scale accidents in the future if we leave this problem as it is. The South Korean ferry that sank last year killed 300 passengers, mainly students, and prompted apologies from President Park geun along with promises of better safety and rescue measures. But the tragedy moved many in the nation away from traditional fears of natural disaster toward those man-made and government inability to protect them. So reports Hee-An Young Choi, a research fellow at South Korea's Asan Institute of Policy Studies, for the Big Question feature in World Policy Journal's Spring 2015 issue, What is your country's biggest fear for its future? Responses came from four continents and covered a wide range of threats, economic, social, military, and environmental. For a survey of those responses, I spoke earlier with Journal Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick. Welcome to World Policy on Air, Yaffa.
2: Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: The entry from South Korea says lack of faith in government extends far beyond maritime matters.
2: Yes, the sinking of the ferry aroused unprecedented fears among Koreans. The tragic accident could have been prevented. A better response could have saved more lives. But the institutions and the infrastructure broke down, and they couldn't guarantee that personal safety.
0: And to some degree, the author says, South Korea's economic overdrive may be a fundamental cause.
2: Certainly. South Korea has attained a kind of economic growth that no other country has been able to achieve in modern history. But that comes at a price, and in this case, a price of personal safety. People fear that the state and government may not be able to ensure their personal security in times of crises because they put the economy before the people.
0: Bangladesh also has experienced remarkable economic growth, 6% annually since 1996, but also a fast-growing population and the threat of shrinking space and resources because of serious environmental changes. Talk about that.
2: Certainly. It is remarkable that Bangladesh has seen the kind of economic growth that it has, given its precarious geography. Bangladesh is one of the world's most densely populated countries. Situated in a low-lying delta, it's vulnerable to flooding and cyclones, and it suffers quite regularly significant human and infrastructural losses from those natural disasters. You might say it's at the forefront of the effects of climate change. In fact, melting ice caps are raising sea levels and threatening the coastline of Bangladesh, endangering the lives of nearly 25 million Bangladeshis.
0: Wow. Economic underperformance is a major source of fear for many countries. Uh, The journal surveyed Brazil, for example, after its own period of extraordinary growth, according to contributor Roberto Fent, who's executive director of the Brazilian Center for International Relations. What went wrong to bring more than a million people into the streets about that earlier this year?
2: Sure. Many would like to attribute it to the slow growth of the global economy, but the truth is that doesn't tell the full story. The paralysis rests on insufficient domestic demand. The government expanded public expenditures, state banks, finance the private sector and at below market interest rates. But after four years of these measures being in place, it's resulted in a deterioration of payments and increasing inflationary pressures.
0: Talk about uh, how Fence's says President Dilma Rousseff is trying to deal with the problem along with pressures from special interests, and we have to note uh, a serious corruption scandal.
2: Certainly. Rousseff is trying to adapt a more conservative economic policy, reducing subsidies, cutting back expenditures, raising taxes to promote or produce the minimum primary budget surplus needed to stabilize the growth of the debt. But she's facing these challenges, as you noted, in light of all of these scandals and the special interests that thrived under the previous system of public expenditures and state banks.
0: Moving to Namibia, we heard the huge fears of unemployment, especially youth unemployment, and something called affirmative repositioning. What can you tell us?
2: Well, Namibia's biggest problem is arguably unemployment. Since independence from South Africa in 1990, unemployment has risen from 34% to 49%, and this has had two effects. High unemployment has led to changing migration patterns. We're witnessing a steady increase of rural to urban migration, which is placing significant pressure on urban authorities and driving up the cost of land. But the second issue comes back to what you mentioned with youth unemployment. And the youth response has actually been an interesting campaign called affirmative repositioning, whereby many landless youth are actually submitting applications to the government for land, seeing that as their opportunity to start fresh. The government has been largely unresponsive and unsupportive of the campaign, but it may well have to respond to, or the campaign could pose a huge challenge to its authority.
0: So this would be a sort of reverse migration back to the countryside.
2: Or uh, buying of land within the city for Ah. um, very cheap prices.
0: I see. The greatest fears in Turkey focus on what the contributor there calls fault lines, beginning literally with the seismological. Talk about that and some of the other fears there.
2: Sure. So beginning with the literal one, Istanbul, which is Turkey's bustling commercial center, sits on one of these fault lines and has the potential to face a devastating earthquake that could destroy it. But moving more away from uh, the literal, on the political level, we're seeing huge polarization between secularists and religious conservatives that's leading to a lot of domestic strife. Um, as well as the multiple identities within Turkey that haven't been reconciled between native Turks and Kurds and the Syrians. And on regional level, there are major challenges, again, along sectarian lines, the instability of the Syrian conflict, the millions of Syrian refugees flowing into Turkey, as well as the threat of ISIS. And then Ankara has to maintain this delicate balance between its Western allies and an increasingly assertive Russia, on which it depends for energy. Of course, on the global level, you have the intensifying threat from religious extremist terrorist networks, on the one hand, and Islamophobic and extremist national that are kind of using Turkey as a base for this.
0: One of the more interesting fears was significantly psychological. Talk about what the contributor from France called a sense of looming twilight, uh, with roots far deeper than the Islamist terror attack on the publication Charlie Hebdo. What causes and impact does he see?
2: Sure. The French are increasingly looking to their future and frankly their present with angst. In a nation of reduced economic and professional opportunities, they're worrying that their future might not be one of enlightened self-interest helping to build a nation, but rather one where defiance governs the sharing of an ever-shrinking pie. In other words, they distrust the other, be it the insider who they see as having gamed the system to gain employment, the political opponent who won't compromise for fear of being cheated, or the immigrant who's coming in and taking away their job opportunities. And the impact of that we've seen start to play out. We have increasing strife between secular Frenchmen and religious nationals. We have the increased threat of attacks coming from within France. And then, of course, the discouragement of individual projects and collective ambition.
0: Uh, By contrast to a degree, a researcher at the Egyptian Center for Economic Studies writes about fearful optimism, uh, the powerful potential of a fast-growing youth sector, but the lack of education uh, it requires for today's job market. Talk about that.
2: Sure. In 2012, 25% of Egypt's population was age 18 to 25. This is an enormous, unused, and untapped potential. But the problem is that many of these young people are entering the job market unprepared for the skills required in a constantly evolving labor market. They end up in unproductive jobs where they lack the skills, and these jobs often fail to meet their aspirations for better living standards. But Egypt can't grow and develop unless it can train this underemployed population and utilize them. In fact, there is fear that the country may experience a brain drain. The latest number is that if the educational system is not reformed by 2018, one million young Egyptians will have entered the job market without the skills needed to do those jobs.
0: In Italy, the fear focuses on the nation's elderly as well as its youth. The contributor mentions threats to the pension system and to an important segment of immigration.
2: Sure. Well, in 2000, 30-somethings represented the largest demographic in Italy, but that's changing. And by 2050, it's actually going to be the 70-somethings that comprise the largest segment of the population. And a growing geriatric population should be concerned about the pension system, which is facing financial and organizational challenges. Furthermore, changes in immigration could affect the elderly who often rely on female immigrants known as Badantes or caretakers to care for them when they get older. Then again, many argue that the youth are actually the ones facing the biggest issues, and it's the elderly parents who should be worried for their children and grandchildren's futures.
0: Ukraine's biggest fear is obvious, a Russian desire to destroy it as an independent state. But there's interesting fallout from Moscow's ongoing military, economic, and political pressure across the region. Start with the report from Estonia.
2: Yep. Estonia is a small and liberal country that finds itself caught between Western Europe and Russia. But Western Europe is facing serious economic issues and is looking internally and probably will be for the near future as it tries to rectify those. But that leaves Estonia quite vulnerable. In this situation, Russia, an aggressive Eastern neighbor with authoritarian leadership, can easily overlay military activities in some modern form with a new pretext as it did in Crimea last year. And though Estonia is a member of NATO and in theory should be protected by its Western allies, the fourth article of the NATO treaty says that members must first consult before taking action. So Estonians' biggest fear is that they'll be disregarded by the West in their relations with the East.
0: There are variations on that theme from Moldova.
2: Yes, Moldova's biggest concern similarly is Russia's growing military involvement in the region. While the nation's pro-Europe ruling party tries to move Moldova closer to, to the EU, Russian policymakers perceive the rapprochement as a threat to their foreign policy objectives. Russia isn't willing to let Moldova join the EU or NATO. It actively supports anti-EU political players who have on their agenda integration with the Eurasian Union, which is modeled after the EU, but is really Russia's attempt to recreate the Soviet Union. And so this creates a tug of war between the pro-European right wing and the pro-Russian left wing. And many Moldovan politicians are looking to neighboring Ukraine with growing concern that a similar hybrid warfare will play out within their borders. The potential unfreezing of the Trinistrian conflict, coupled with the intense Gagau's activism in the southern part of Moldova, provide Russia with an opportunity to push the nation to the brink of a violent civil conflict.
0: The biggest fear on the mind of your German contributor was surveillance and the degree to which uh, the loss of personal privacy has been accepted as inevitable. Uh, What happened to the public outrage over U.S. monitoring of German telecommunications up to and including the cell phone of Chancellor Angela Merkel?
2: That's an excellent question. Since the uproar over the NSA, the renewed discussion of surveillance measures no longer causes substantial outrage. At most, you see the desperate head shaking through Twitter hashtags or on Facebook. And certainly there are activists and journalists who are trying to keep the discussion alive, but it's not attracting the audience anymore. The fact that total surveillance could lead to an erosion of basic rights seems to have been forgotten. And if Germans want to address this difficult reality, it's going to involve several uncomfortable solutions that many of them might not be willing to take. In other words, one of the biggest threats to Germany is that total surveillance as a discussion is sliding into obscurity.
0: Yaffa, thank you. Thank you. Yaffa Frederick is Managing Editor of World Policy Journal. She surveyed responses to the spring issue's Big Question feature, What is Your Country's Biggest Fear for its Future? Also featured in the spring 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, You'll find articles on intelligence failures leading to the Mumbai terror attacks, on the future of Islam and Islam in our future, and on tax havens, past, present, and future. Plus, tune in to next week's podcast as we talk with writer and consultant Christopher Reeve about his article in the issue, HIV in the Arab Spring, The Unseen War. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Publisher David Andelman, managing editor Jaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.